Welcome to A Path Home. This is the podcast where we demystify the tasks related to after-death care through hearing stories from people who have cared for their own deceased loved ones at home. I'm your host, Sarah Cruz. I'm the director of Heartland Prairie Cemetery, a home funeral guide, death educator, and a member of the National Home Funeral Alliance. Welcome to the second episode of Season 4. I want to take a moment to thank those of you who reached out to me to share your personal stories here on A Path Home. It's people like you that make this podcast possible. And thanks to all of you who tune in to listen. If you're new to A Path Home, there are 57 episodes for you to explore. Today I have a conversation with Karen Van Vuren. She founded the educational nonprofit Natural Transitions. She's one of the founding members of the National Home Funeral Alliance and co-founder of The Natural Funeral in Lafayette, Colorado. Karen has been an integral part of the natural death care movement for over 20 years. She's also an award-winning documentary filmmaker of two movies, Dying Wish and Go in Peace. You'll find a link in the show notes to The Natural Funeral, as well as links to access her documentaries. In this episode, we discuss the unexpected way that she got started on this path. Thank you, Karen, for joining me on A Path Home. I really appreciate your being here. And I know that you have a a wealth of experience in the field of not only home funerals, but also green burial. And you've been involved in this movement, dare I say, uh, for a long time. One of the first people that I met associated with the National Home Funeral Alliance. And I've just been pleased to know you all these years. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. I wonder if you could share with us sort of your origin story of how you got involved in this work. That would be a nice place to start. I got involved in this work shortly after I had my children. I guess one was the eldest was three and the youngest was one. And I had births that I would deem um, very thought out, the environment that my children entered into and how I received them and my husband received them and what we provided in terms of a a very sacred space for them Mm -hmm. to be birthed into. And when I had my children, it was when I had my First, even, I started to think a lot about my brother, who was two and a half years younger than I was, and he died when he was nine. And so I grew up in England, in London. My mother was from England. My father was from the Netherlands. And my brother was born in a hospital in Canada, because they were both immigrants there. And he got hepatitis as a newborn, along with some other newborns. It was just an illness that was in that hospital. And he was very sick, and they thought he would die. And he underwent a surgery on his liver because it was so compromised. And he survived the surgery and then my parents were told, well, he's just not going to live very long. He's, he's too um, damaged. And um, it turned out he was actually brain damaged. 
and also had this organ issue with his liver being so compromised Mm -hmm. and I don't know about the brain damage piece like whether that was surgery related I don't even know what the surgery was and my parents didn't ask questions in those days Uh, they were working class people and they just had this sick child and handed the sick child over and didn't really understand what was going on and anyway so they given back this little yellow baby Mm. And I remember riding home from the hospital in the car and there's this little thing and um, and he he ended up living for like nine years and was super sick a lot of his life in a lot of pain and there wasn't palliative care in those days. We actually moved to England so I grew up in London and my mother wanted to be close to her parents so that's why we ended up there. But he, uh, he was kind of dying most of his life. It was, mm. it was a point where he stabilized a bit and he learned to walk, never learned to talk. But, you know, he screamed at night from pain. My dad had a full-time job working in a factory. And then my dad would be up at night because my mother was just too much for her. And so um, that was the environment of my childhood. And wow. it, it's not that I, at the time, knew anything different, right? Like, you're mm-hmm. there, it's your life, your your brother's really ill, and um, he needs a lot of care. And so I, I don't think I had really deep reflection about that journey, his, his life, and then his death, and, until I uh, had my own children. Suddenly, he just came through very strongly for me. Mm-hmm. And these questions about his death which was in an ICU he was there for months before he died hooked up to life support and had declined to the point where he was really a skeleton they didn't let children into hospitals I never went to see him and I think my parents probably didn't want me seeing him either and my father I think was the only one who went my mother couldn't bear it and then finally one day they called to the hospital called and I knew the phone was going to ring and the hospital had a brief exchange with my dad and my dad turned to my mother and to me and said well that's it Dirk has gone and we've got to get on with life and uh, there was no celebration of life or honoring of his life there was a cremation my mother went to with a friend but I just went to school the next day and had these teachers saying to me, oh, we heard your brother died. Oh, we're so sorry. And and it didn't mean anything to me because he died actually way before his physical death. He just had disappeared from my life. And yeah, it was a surreal thing. And and so I, I never mourned or grieved his death. I didn't think about it, as I said, until I had my own children. And then my parents divorced, so, you know, there was, like, another death happening. And so, anyway, I I started thinking about my brother, and I had been a journalist in my 20s and and had no no notion, not in my wildest dreams, would I have thought that working with death could be a vocation for me. But I, I just had this question about, well, if we can bring people in, if we can create this sacred environment for 
people to enter the world. Could death be any different? And I, I had curiosity about how we die and then what happens when we die. And I don't know. I just went on, on this on this journey of learning. And we moved to the United States, my husband and I. And uh, I knew there was an assisted living that was down the street that had a sort of holistic orientation. And I thought, well, um, kids are still little, but you know, I could work. I could maybe go do some volunteering at this elder care home. So I, I did and then learned, um, well, just learned, learned caregiving. I became a caregiver. I was a volunteer. Then I was a caregiver. Then I was a volunteer coordinator or activities person and I was co-administrating the home and just learned a lot in four years being with families from early when their people were there it was mostly um, residents with Alzheimer's what that trajectory looked like when you have dementia and um, then you start to lose your faculties and then there are these deaths until the very big death um, the little deaths and then the big one. And so, yeah, in this home, I should say it was run by someone, Peggy Quinn, who died this year. Oh, wow. And she, um, really did embrace the idea that death is sacred. It's a spiritual transition. So we are going to not hide it when people die. <laughs> We're going to do the opposite. We're going to talk about it to the families, to the residents. When someone dies, we're going to invite the family in to be participatory around washing the body and and then dressing and then having them be there for as long as the families wanted. So, I mean, that was part of it, um, mm-hmm. as part of how the home functioned. And and then I met Beth Knox, who started Crossings at an anthroposophical institute as associated with Waldorf and Rudolf Steiner. Mm-hmm. His philosophy, I met her in Maine at this institute and heard that she had had a, an experience with her daughter dying and that she was really supporting education about home funerals. And, you know, that's what we were doing in the assisted living as well. And I thought, oh, it's great. She should uh, come out for a workshop. So I organized that and then after the workshop, I thought, well, we need something that is local. So then I started Natural Transitions, which is an educational nonprofit to provide information about natural death care, but really to in in the beginning it was to really support families to do home funerals. And then it morphed into something much more around conscious, natural approaches to end of life and education about that. Wow, that's quite an origin story. (laughs) I'm really touched by the fact that you had this experience as a child, growing up with a brother who was so very ill. And in a circumstance and family culture, but also sort of the broader culture of not really asking questions around that and just being sort of pulled along by the the medical norms of the time. And that that would obviously resonate with you on a very deep level in terms of your formative years. And that it didn't really come around until you had your own children. And suddenly it's like illness happens 
happens to babies, happens to, to children. I'm just fascinated how it just continued to move you. You followed your heart in, in a lot of ways of, of kind of honoring your brother through, through getting into the work that you did years later. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Full circle. You know, you touched on this work that you were doing with Peggy Quinn. And I have to say that Peggy and I stayed in touch over the years. She called me a few years back and asked me to send one of my CDs to her because she had lost hers. It was just very sweet. I loved talking with her on the phone. I didn't realize that she had died. But um, that's a big loss. She was really a wonderful person. Yeah, yeah. Was there a personal story of a home funeral that you participated in or in the after-death care, I should say, while you were working there at the home? One that, just the story that kind of touched you deeply, that made you go, oh, this is really important. I need to maybe devote a little bit more time to, to spreading the word on this. Oh, that's a great question. Because I haven't really hearkened back to those days for a while because there have been so many others in between <laughs> but they were formative at those deathbed times with people I've got a, no a number of stories that uh, are just popping into my consciousness right now there was one there, there are home funeral stories there are also stories about people dying right can't separate them there was one where a resident was at the end. I think she had entered her labor, so you know she was uh, not seemingly conscious. Although we know that there, I feel <laughs> mm -hmm. maybe some people would dispute it that even in that labor where someone might be glossy-eyed and and seemingly uh, almost uh, across the threshold, that there can be a really heightened awareness and this this person was laboring quite hard during their dying process and you know that can be hard for families to to be with but in the assisted living at the time there was a cat <laughs> that um, that this this woman uh, who was dying really felt quite connected with and so I'm sitting there, and then there are two grown adult daughters, they're twins, who are sitting with mom, and, uh, you know, we're just holding space. And this cat gets up onto the bed and, and lies down with the front paws out on this woman's chest. I kid you not, the her breathing really changed <laughs> quite noticeably mm -hmm. and and then eased and then you know was not there and then the cat got up and walked off like oh my work here is done and thereafter she did have uh I think it was a multi-day wake where um the daughter's participated in washing her body and dressing her and telling stories and I think they covered her in rose petals and 
Yeah, it was it was pretty special. There was another person whose um, elderly mother died, and this is this was an interesting one. I don't think I've ever had a an experience like it. So when when mom died, the adult daughter wanted she thought she wanted to come and be present and she didn't know how it would be to participate in any ritual and mm-hmm. so she stood she stood at the end of the bed and basically um during the whole process I was doing the washing and the dressing and then I think she did do some anointing there were just all these jokes being cracked the whole time about her mother and and the wacky things her mother did and in a in a very loving way right but um it was (laughs) definitely a different kind of scene (laughs) Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't want to pressure her to participate. Like I, I was honoring her comfort level and I felt she was participating by just being there, but she she got a kick out of seeing me being tender and and you know giving her mom this this last bathing and and the stories just poured out and as I said, some of them were a bit racy and uh it was um that was the way she participated was that was the way she participated telling you those stories so you started natural transitions and part of what that was was a magazine oh yeah yeah we had a magazine for 10 years and that was initially published four times a year then it was twice a year and we put on conferences we had a film fa- two film festivals mm, wonderful yeah, just went down all these different avenues. And now you're involved with The Natural Funeral, located north of Boulder. Yeah, I ended up starting a funeral home. That's been a journey as well. Have you been well received in the, in the region? Yeah, it's you know, it takes um it takes a lot of education and penetrating systems to let them know that you exist so so families can understand there are choices so that's just ongoing right but our funeral home did have the first water cremation in Colorado and then also the first body composting client mm-hmm. and currently we're the only company doing body composting which is also here it's called natural reduction mm-hmm so we, we've definitely been pioneers in offering green forms of disposition. Mm-hmm. And then we also have, we have home funerals in our chapel that we call it Reverend Body Care. I see. Now, will you um, also support families that want to do the after-death care in their homes? Oh, definitely we have. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's, it's particularly helpful to have another option when it's a sudden death though because of the shock that families are in and then the idea of bringing a body back to their home can just be overwhelming you know just if, if it's such a um an alien idea concept right to have right. something in the home it's a sort of hybrid option to say you can have this meaningful ritual with your loved one in a sacred space that that we are 
providing to you if you don't feel home is going to work. Right. But we've definitely done home funerals. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Do you feel like there's any one message that is the most important one to get out to people when you're doing this kind of natural funeral education and the main thing that you think people should know? Well, the main thing is to know that there are choices and that you have more power than you think, more rights than you think you do. Absolutely. Even in states where there's a mandate that you must hire a funeral director, you still have more choices than you have been led to believe. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, just really to be asking questions and finding out what is true so that then you can make informed decisions about what is right. And I think that more and more people are realizing that they need to start investigating these things in advance. You know, it is very hard, not only when the death is sudden, but even if it's not a sudden death and you haven't really figured out what what you're going to do, you know, it's it's really important to ask some of these questions in advance and not wait until a crisis moment. Yeah, because the crisis moment, you can't even take in information. I mean, we see that all the time. People come in and they're in such utter shock, especially, you know, if it's a young person who's ended their life um, or overdose, mm. that then... Um, these notions of, oh, you could have ceremony with their body and it, it could be healing and there are green choices and they just can't do it sometimes. They just can't think of anything other than what they already know and mm-hmm. right. you know how it is. Yeah. Well, Karen, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate the work you do too, Sarah. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. A Path Home is a production of the National Home Funeral Alliance, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating and advocating for communities and families who choose to care for their own loved ones at death. Check out our website at homefuneralalliance.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to tell a friend and subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to share your home funeral or natural burial experience on the podcast, please email me at podcast at homefuneralalliance.org. We'd love to hear from you. The music at the beginning and end of A Path Home is written and performed by Sarah Cruz. Our beautiful cover art is by Linda Carre. And until next time, remember the words of Ram Das: We are all walking each other home. I want to be there to walk you home I'll tend to your body, you'll tend to my soul And if it happens the other way around I know you're gently laying me in the ground Take the next breath